So we are looking at the book of Acts. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 6, we are looking at the life of an ordinary man, a man named Stephen. He was not one of the apostles, and he was just, in a sense, like, like every one of us, a follower of Christ. Many of you are followers of Christ. I know not all of you, though. But he is a bit of a standout leader. He, uh, in the passage just before the one we're going to look at, he is a num- among one of seven men who are kind of selected from the church to lead the care for those in need. He is a man who is deeply devout and committed to God. Talks about him, um, how he's prayed for healing and seen fantastic, marvelous works of God through his prayers. He's also a man who has actively gone out to the synagogues in Jerusalem and is preaching about Christ. And what we're going to see is that in response to that preaching, he encounters opposition. And he is dragged before the Sanhedrin. He is kind of put on trial. And the mob is worked up into a frenzy. And yet all the way through, we see an incredible character Incredible response under pressure, peace and grace in the midst of really quite remarkable opposition and suffering. And then we will come to the moment when he gives his life. He dies. He doesn't seek it out, but they stone him to death. So uh, as as a result of their offense to the message that he is preaching. What I want you to see as we read this passage is Stephen is embodying the person of Christ here. As you see this story, there is no, it is no coincidence that many things about what Stephen does will remind you of the kind of crucifixion narrative of Christ. And it really, as we unpack Stephen's kind of last moments, so to speak, I want us to see the challenge that Christ would lay before us that we might become like him amidst opposition that we might embody Christ. We might display the character of Christ even in the hardest times of our lives. Let me read to you then. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So there is a group coming from a specific synagogue of Hellenized Jews, Jews who've come from outside of Jerusalem, and they are rising up. They are disputing what Stephen is making, the claims that Stephen is making. Stephen is preaching about Christ, and they are opposed to the message that he is preaching. And then it's verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They can't withstand the arguments he's making. So what do they do? Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. So they grab him and bring him before the Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face 
was like the face of an angel. The mob has seized him, and his face is like the face of an angel. And then the high priest says, are these these things so? And then Stephen launches into a a long speech that we won't read, because it would take quite a long time. But interestingly, he doesn't really try to answer the accusations. They have brought these false accusations. He's speaking against the temple. He's, he's kind of challenging us not to follow Moses' customs. Actually, he doesn't really answer that criticism. Instead, he tells them the story of the people of Israel. He kind of t- narrates their own, their own common story together. And he tells them about the patriarchs, about Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes on. But really, as he, as he tells the story, he's speaking about the faithfulness of God. He's saying, look, God has been faithful to our people, but the kicker, the punchline in this story is that God's people have been unfaithful to him. That he is on trial, but yet he challenges them. And you'll see this at the end of the speech if you kind of skip forward to verse 38, 39, 40, chapter 7. It says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. This talking about Moses with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. He's saying Moses received the word of God to give us. But our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Saying, God gave them a ruler and redeemer in the person of Moses. They rejected him and instead they worshipped the golden calf just as Moses was up on the mountaintop receiving the very living oracles of God. He's pointing out this heritage of disobedience. And then he goes to verse 51. Come forward with me. I'm going to read it. This is kind of the, have you heard the phrase TLDR? Too long, didn't read? This is the TLDR of this, of this, of this long speech. It's an accusation. And he says really loudly and clearly, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. There is blood on your hands. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And what is the response to this great accusation? Unsurprisingly, they are in a murderous rage. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So how do we understand this moment? 
How can we make sense of what we have just witnessed? And I think to understand this passage, you need to understand that Stephen is really providing us a way in to see the person of Christ, that he is embodying Christ. There's so many parallels between what Stephen does and the crucifixion narrative of Christ. Let me give you a few. He is drawn, he's pulled before a trial of the Sanhedrin. That's exactly what happens to Jesus. And at that, say, at that trial, they bring false witnesses. That's exactly what happens to Jesus. The false witnesses bring an accusation about his opposition to the temple. That's exactly what happens to Jesus. And can you see the great contrast between Stephen and his accusers? The murderous frenzy, the rage of the crowd, almost wanting to kind of rip him limb from limb. See the kind of calculating deviousness of his accusers as they trump up these false witnesses and bring them before the Sanhedrin, how they seek to stir up the crowd. And in the midst of all that, Stephen just looks like an angel. He looks beautiful. He is kind of serene against the opposition. He is, in some sense, silent before his accusers, just as Christ was silent before his accusers. You remember the um, psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. It reminds me of this moment when he describes, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. This moment of Stephen before the frenzied mob is just like Jesus on the cross. The crowd is kind of fermenting in its anger. You remember in Mark's gospel how the um, religious leaders whip up the crowd. So in front of Pilate, they say, they start shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The same thing has happened here. They are kind of whipping up and stirring up the crowd in a kind of frenzied violence until Stephen meets his end. So there's a great contrast between the aggressors and the victim, just as we see in Jesus' crucifixion narrative. You can see it even in the location of his death. Both Stephen and Jesus are brought outside the city as a mark of judgment on them, that they are kind of beyond hope, so to speak. This is a kind of mark of judgment. Ironically, of course, there is judgment on the aggressors in both incidents. You can even see it in Stephen's death. At the end of this passage, you can see the parallels with, with Jesus' death. You can see how Stephen's final words include him committing his spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just as Jesus committed his spirit to the Father on the cross, said, Father, I, commit my, I receive my spirit, so too... In this moment, Stephen is committing his spirit to Jesus. What else do we see? You see, and just before he dies, his final words are a mark of forgiving his aggressors. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Aren't they eerily familiar? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those are the words that we hear from Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
in this same moment, we are seeing Jesus in Stephen. We are seeing a Christ-like witness, a Christ-like sacrifice. Why? Well, I think both in Stephen's actions and in Luke's retelling, Stephen is showing us the Christ-like way to respond to opposition. The Christ-like way to respond to opposition. This is a kind of vignette, a moment, a scene, which reminds us of the great reality that all of us who are Christians perhaps are aware of but need to be reminded of, that we are mini-Christs. That we are mini-Christs. That we are called to carry something of the aroma of Christ in every part of our lives. And it's, in a sense, you're seeing that in absolute clarity in this moment as Stephen carries the aroma of Christ as he faces this opposition. That phrase, Christian, Christianos, that language which is first used about Christians in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch is a kind of mini-Christ, basically, is what it means. And it's a kind of derogatory term. It's fitting because we're speaking about opposition here. That actually from the beginning, Christians have kind of been derogatorily referred to as kind of those of Christ, mini-Christs. And actually, it's kind of turned on its head. So yes, actually, we delight. Do we see the privilege of being mini-Christs? Before we even get to the question of opposition, just stop a second and consider this idea. That you are to look like Christ. This is, this is, this is a profound idea that we could plumb the depths of. We could just spend the rest of the morning talking about this. This is how Paul describes it. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death, and to the other, the fragrance from life to life. We are the aroma of Christ. Do you smell like Christ? Do, people around, do, they, do you leave a kind of Christ-like odor in your wake? What do, you, what do you mean to smell like? Well, if you smell something, you say, you smell like poo-poo, so to speak. You know what I mean? Because if you say that to someone, you, that's a kind of offense to your nostrils. Like in that moment, oh, you smell like, you know, kind of get away from me. Equally, you may have heard the phrase, um, you know, you came out of that meeting smelling like roses. And what you're saying when you say to someone, you're saying, didn't you look good? Didn't you look great, basically? And everyone thought you smelt amazing. That smell is kind of like the impression that you leave with someone. This says loudly and clearly, what impression do you leave with the people around you, your work colleagues and your friends and all the people who interact with you? What impression do you leave with them? This says actually there's something about our lives. Of course, we're all different personalities. We're not kind of all going to be robots and look identical. But through our personalities, Christ would, would intend to shape us to look like him. And this is a great privilege. That even in your hardest moments, you can image and display the person of Christ. Think about maybe you're married and you're walking with your spouse through years of sickness. In that moment, you have an opportunity to display the long-suffering patience of Christ, just as he patiently walks with his bride to this day, and he loves her, and he will not give up on her. So in the same way as you patiently walk with your spouse, you are displaying, you have the opportunity to display something of Christ. Or as you see your brother or sister experiencing walking in sin, and you lovingly confront them, 
you have an opportunity to display something of Christ, both his willingness to kind of root out sin out of our lives and also his loving compassion as he does so. Or maybe you are wronged and slandered and someone lies about you and, and, and kind of says mean things about you. In that moment, you have an opportunity to display the character of Christ, to look like Christ as you forgive those who slander you. And this, this moment says, will you display Christ amidst opposition? I would argue that one of the great cultural, one of the great challenges of this cultural moment is opposition. In one sense, this is universal. Christ says, so they hated me, they're going to hate you. But actually in this moment, we do experience something of that kind of opposition. I mean, just this week, I heard stories of um, one te- Christian teacher being kind of struck off because he'd misgendered his pupils, so he was kind of wanting to use the gender that they were born with, and then, you know, they're saying, no, I'm not that, I've changed gender, and he was basically, like said, they c- he couldn't teach, basically, because he was not willing to use uh, the, pro- the preferred pronoun of the pupils that he was teaching. Or even this today, as I flipped on Sky News for a moment, there was a news headline about uh, a UCL academic who'd written a paper about some Christian schools and how they had been teaching in the UK some anti-science, anti-rationalistic kind of um, ideas. And I don't need to get into it, the the headline, but my point is, this week, two headlines, and you know that you'll see this in the, the depictions on TV and the kind of way that Christians or religious people are depicted, so often it, there's a kind of a scent of, these guys are just deeply opposed to everything that's good in our society. They're kind of an, they're kind of, they stand against the uh, great progressive agenda, and in a sense they're kind of anti all that is good in our culture. And the question is, how will we respond to that? How will we respond to this opposition? And I think what Stephen is showing us is a response that is kind of challenging on two levels. It's distinctive. It's not what you think. You see, when we, anybody mistreats you, you, may, you know that we would kind of respond with a kind of fight or flight. So either we get aggressive or we run away. And actually, this response challenges both of those responses. Some of us are drawn towards flight. We want to be reasonable. And so in, 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 in kind of response to the opposition of the world, we try and dial down our distinctives. We try and say, we're, look, we're acceptable. You've got to like us. Sometimes church, whole churches will do this. They'll never kind of talk about controversial issues because they are wanting to kind of be accepted by the culture. Sometimes that leads to outright compromise and heresy as they seek to be acceptable. So there'll be those who kind of want to flight, so to speak, who kind of, kind of want to dial down their differences. And this says... Right, rightly and clearly, Stephen says, no, we're going to courageously confront. We're not going to uh, compromise and, and out of fear, but we are going to courageously confront our culture. Then there are others who I think are more drawn towards fight and say, actually, we are going to talk negatively about our culture. We are going to decry and attack and denigrate our critics, and we are just going to kind of sneer at them and kind of just kind of look forward to heaven while we judge everybody else. And, and this says, no, you can't do that. Because in his confrontation, he is also full of love. Also, he's willing to die for them. Also, he's willing to forgive his opponents. That actually his, his, his confrontation is also love. And the two go together. So he's neither fight nor flight. And the thing that both those things have in common is they are self-preservation. If you are attacked and you either fight or flight, what is going on? I'm saying, I want to preserve myself. And what is Stephen doing? The very opposite of that. 
It's not self-preservation. It's self-sacrifice. He's not doing either of those things because he has a higher agenda. The agenda he has is love. Love because he images the great Savior who is full of love. So our interaction with the world must look different to either of those two things. I want to unpack that for you. I want to look at the courage and confidence that, that Stephen has. I want to look at the peace and grace that he has in the midst of suffering and put that all together and say, see, see the call to lay down your life just as Stephen is laying down his life. So courageous confrontation, first of all. We may be tempted to make ourselves acceptable in the face of the kind of challenge from culture. But being Christ-like means being willing to confront the spiritual rebellion all around us. You see Stephen's example here. It's profound when you think about it. They have got him on trial. They have dragged him on trial. And yet in the midst of that, who's actually on trial? Stephen says, no, 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 you're in the dock. Actually, you're putting me on trial. No, it's actually our forefathers who have mocked and rebelled against God. And now you, stiff-necked people, you, I'm going to accuse you of the reality that you have murdered the living God. You have murdered the righteous one. You murdered Jesus Christ. So they put him on trial, but he puts them on trial. He challenges them. He points out their rebellion. That's, he uses that language of stiff-necked people. It's, a kind of a, it's not a complimentary image. Stiff-necked is kind of like a, a cow, basically, or a, a kind of donkey, a, a beast of burden that is not submissive. Think, the contrast is with a sheep. A sheep, you kind of, you can, a small child can run up to a sheep and they kind of move and they follow you. They're very kind of submissive creatures in that sense, fearful almost. But, but a cow, you can kind of sometimes be in the midst of danger and they're not doing anything. They're just kind of stuck there. They've got stiff necks. And Stephen's saying, no, you are stiff-necked people. You are rebelling against the living God. You've done this all the way through. See your whole lineage of how you've opposed the prophets and how you've murdered Christ. And of course, this is exactly what we see in Jesus. Just as he is brought before the Sanhedrin, hear his response to them. The high priest stood up in the midst. This is Jesus on trial. Jesus is kind of, you imagine him in the middle, the Sanhedrin all around him in a semicircle, and the Sanhedrin, uh, the, the chief high priest, stands up and says, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is he saying there? He's saying, I am coming back to judge you. The Son of Man, that language of Son of Man actually refers back to Daniel chapter 7. It speaks of one who's been given dominion over everything. In that moment, Jesus is saying, you will see the Son of Man. You will see the one you're accusing now seated at the right hand of the Father coming back to judge the living and the dead. You will come under judgment just as you are judging me in this moment. And no surprisingly, then the high priest tears his garment and says, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. So offended is he with Jesus' challenge to his authority. This says really loudly and clearly, Christ-likeness isn't niceness. Sometimes we think of Christ-likeness, say that isn't very Christ-like. And what we mean is that isn't very nice. And I think we're missing the point there. Christ-likeness 
Being like Christ means being willing to confront, not because, you're, not because you're on a kind of mission to point out everything that's wrong with the people around you. Why does he confront? Because he loves them. Think about Jesus and the rich young man. He says he looks at him with love. He looks at him with love. And then he says, you lack one thing. Go and give everything away. Actually, the reason why Jesus is willing to confront, even the reason why we see Stephen willing to confront in this moment, is out of love. And so we too, the church, are called to confront our culture out of a posture of love. It says the world is not agnostic. I'm sure some of you even here might be agnostic. You say, I don't really know about God. But actually, the Bible says that the posture of all those who reject Christ is in some sense a posture of open rebellion. That actually they are not just kind of neutrally agnostic, but actually currently they are standing in opposition to the one who made them with no reference to him, no sense of worship, right worship to him. And the Lord is coming to them and saying, you are mine. In a sense, before we even think about our confrontation with the world, we first of all say, God is confronting the world in love, in this moment through Stephen, and it's meant to be in our lives too. Just as Stephen is giving these people a wake-up call, <laughs> a wake-up call saying, don't you see? Don't you see your rebellion? Don't you see how you think you're doing the right thing, but actually you're completely missing the point? You need to be woken up to your rebellion. So in the same way, the people around us or some of you even here today, might need to be woken up, so to speak, to your rebellion. <laughs> and to say, here, the voice of God, he says, you are mine, and I deserve your worship. You were made to worship me. So this idea of stiff-necked, we think it just refers to the people of Israel, but actually this is the human condition a kind of rebelliousness at the heart of humanity. I wonder what would be the speech to Londoners. I wonder what we would say if Stephen was standing up in the middle of Trafalgar Square. I think you could use the same language of stiff-necked people. You say Londoners, stiff-necked people, refusing to consider Christ, pursuing worldly success and material wealth, assuming that that would validate your existence and give you meaning and purpose, but you have missed the living God who stands behind all the good gifts that you are pursuing and the only one who can truly give meaning and purpose to your life. We might say, stiff-necked Londoners, you have worshipped sex and food and any, all kinds of wonderful sensory experiences in the pursuit of satisfaction, but you have missed, you have refused to come to the living God who is the source of lasting satisfaction whose love is better than life. So you do not need to pursue all those kind of empty systems. Instead, come back to the living God, who is the answer to your longing for satisfaction. Or Londoners, stiff-legged Londoners, you have pursued love. You have pursued empathy, tolerance, and inclusion. Those are important values to you, Londoners, but you've missed the living God, who is the source of the love that you aspire towards, the love that you want to treat each other with, is only found in the living God who you are resisting. That would be the message that the living God would make to our city. And I would argue that he intends to make it through you. So we ask ourselves, are we willing to confront our friends and colleagues like this? 
Not to be kind of sin finder general, looking for all the issues in people's lives, but to put our finger on the fundamental problem of resistance and rebellion to the living God. It doesn't start here, by the way. When we think about being a witness to Christ, as Stephen is a witness, a martyr, it start, witness doesn't start there. It starts with not living in a Christian bubble, with cultivating genuine relationships with the people around you, of understanding them, of showing them the love that has come to become the dominating ethic of your life, just as Paul goes around Athens and seeks to understand the audience that he's about to preach to, so it means understanding their desires, their dreams, and what they worship. But at some point, our witness has to include this, a willingness to tell people, to tell people that you're a Christian, to be unapologetic about that. Some of us are a little bit apologetic. Some people of us are even ashamed of it. There are difficult words for those who are ashamed of Christ. Actually, are we willing to unashamedly own the fact that we have a different worldview to the people around us? But ultimately, our witness has to include a kind of challenge to our friends. A love, but a confrontation that points out that they are worshipping something that will not satisfy. That they may not even realize that they're in a kind of rebellion towards God. You may even know folk who grew up in the church who still use the label of Christian, even though their life is nothing to do with Christ. Maybe they need you to say to them, do you realize you don't actually follow Christ? You realize that growing up in the church wasn't enough, that you actually need to have a living, vibrant relationship with him, to have surrendered your life to him. I believe God would make that confrontation in love through you. But why is this so hard? Well, I think it actually comes back to what we talked about last week. We said behind our temptation to hypocrisy is a love of the approval of man a love of the, the approval of others. I think it's the same thing that holds us back from being willing to confront the people around us is a love for the approval of, of man. John Calvin, writing about these words, said, those who would pour soothing words into the ears of the wicked, those who don't follow Christ, are not thinking of their good, but are faint-hearted through fear of danger. Soothing words into their ears, because you're faint-hearted, because actually, he's saying they think he actually might be in danger of death. I don't think many of you are in danger of that. But it's the same kind of danger, that same kind of fear built out of a desire for the approval of the people around us. And what would God say to that fear? Well, I think he would say you're fearing the wrong thing. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus speaks to the fear of man. Just, by the way, reminding us again and again, the Bible speaks to the reality of where we're at. God knows us. <laughs> He knows how much we talk, how much we fear and long for the approval of others. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the head, hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Two things he's saying there. One, do not fear man who can only destroy the body. Fear the living God who has authority over all humanity. Allow that fear of man. What's, what's man? What can he do to you? He can only stone you and take you out of the city. You can't really take, take, take that which is most precious, your eternal life with Christ. Why are you fearful of man? Fear the living God who's sovereign over all. That's the first thing he says. 
And the second thing is trust God because he cares for you. He sovereignly sees and cares for the sparrow. How much more does he care for you? Say, don't worry about what they might do to you. I care for you. I love you. And that is what I think is going on in this passage. This is what we see, and that's what I want to bring to the second point, really. See, Stephen, the reason for his attitude here, the reason for his peace and grace in the midst of suffering is because he trusts Jesus in the midst of that suffering. So the second thing that I think this would call us to is peace and grace in suffering. We do not witness with w- only with words, but also with the conduct of our lives. And our peace and grace admits suffering and opposition has the power to lovingly point to Christ. What is so distinctive about this passage? What is so marvelous and attractive? And I would argue it is Stephen's grace under fire. It is Stephen's incredible response to the frenzy, the murderous mob that wants to destroy him and will do so. Stephen is calm. He's peaceful. You see that even in verse 15, the beginning of the, before the speech he gives, he, they describe him as saying, having the face of an angel. Now, I don't really know what exactly the face of an angel looks like, but I've never seen a stressed one. I've never seen an angel depicted as stressed and anxious. <laughs> there's there's got to be a kind of calmness about this picture, a kind of serenity. They're looking at him. Did you notice what they say when, they, when they're speaking about him? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. They're kind of looking at him. What is up with this guy? We're about to throw him and murder him. I don't know if they've quite got that intent at this point to wait till he speaks. But even before that, they're looking at him. They're kind of captivated by his face. Even as they accuse him, they see something that is distinctive and beautiful about him. And then later on, after he's made the speech and after, just as they're killing him, you can see they're about to stone him. And where is his focus? It's not on them. He's gazing. And he can see a kind of prophetic vision in the moment of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to welcome him. He's kind of almost like the rest of this scene is taking place right now, but I'm not really here. (laughs) I'm with Jesus. My eyes are fixed on him. And then you see that forgiveness. And it's stunning because it points to Christ. It reminds me, I don't know about you, sometimes you might lack motivation in the Christian life. You might feel a bit like, oh, just this is all too much and I can't do this. In that moment, I would encourage you to look at Christ again, to see the beauty and nobility of Christ. And when you do so, when you imagine Christ on the cross, silent before his accusers, naked and humiliated as they sneer and mock him, and yet he does not respond in a kind of bitter rancor, or attempt to denigrate his attackers, but takes it. As you see his courage and his willingness to walk towards the cross, even though he knows what it represents, not just human pain, but separation from the Father, that always is the greatest tonic to my soul. As I see the picture of our great hero and his willingness to sacrifice himself, that is what motivates me again in the Christian life, saying, I can but bow as I see the sacrifice that you've made, as I see your nobility, as I see your beauty. And I think Stephen is giving us a pointer to that. And it's stunning. 
And so the, the challenge for us is we are to embody a very different character in the midst of suffering that points to Christ. Luc Ferry, the um, French historian, philosopher, uh, wrote the uh, brief, brief history of modern thought. And um, he's not a Christian. And in one of his chapters is called The Victory of Christianity. And in that chapter, he describes why Christianity kind of took over against the kind of Roman and Greek classical thought of the time. And he argues that it is the, the, the answer to the problem of suffering. The concrete hope of life after death and the love of God in the midst of suffering that, that meant that Christianity became so popular. And so, if that's true, what Stephen is giving us a picture of is really our call to embody a trust in God in the midst of suffering that says loudly and clearly, my Savior is in control. And that makes us look radically different. That is what we are seeing here. That is why some of you would look at Stephen and say, that's incredible. That's almost otherworldly. And it is. <laughs> and that's, the content, that's how Christ intends us to look. I think he's the, the visible manifestation of this um, instruction found in 1 Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While, those, while you suffer, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. The thing that marks Stephen out here is he trusts God in the midst of suffering. Now, when I hear, when I call you to look different in suffering, when I call you to embody something of the peace of Christ, I wonder if there's a danger that you think, right, I need to put on a pretense, and I need to kind of look and appear like I'm, I'm all peaceful, so to speak, and underneath it, I'm all sort of raging and, and teary, and that's not what you need to hear here. You see, again and again, the scripture is really clear, and we spoke about this last week, the honesty before God. Think about the psalmist who, who pours out his tears before the living God, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And then he goes on and talks about his remembering. So there's no, there's no sense to which the peace that Christ would call us to have is a kind of pretense that we kind of don't feel the ability or the option to be sad. Some of you need to be here. When you're in the midst of suffering, that you need to feel permission to be sad with God. That is okay. That is normal because God knows our frame. <laughs> and knows that we, are, that we go through sad things. The Bible gives us permission to be there. But it does mean a few different things. It means a conviction that when all is lost, and when I've lost something which is most precious to me, I can go on because I have a preciousness, the most precious thing, in Christ. This is summed up so well, I think, in Habakkuk chapter 3. This promise, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Basically, so if I lose everything, if I lose all my riches, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy. I will choose to take joy in that moment. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. You may lose everything. That may be really painful, but that doesn't take away from the fact that you have the living God. You have his love, and that is the most precious reality that cannot be taken away from you. That is the ultimate comfort in suffering. There's also a comfort here that he's, the suffering you experience will not destroy you. That, you. that however hard things get, you will be able to endure. Think about those verses in Isaiah. 
When, I, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Sometimes when you're suffering, you almost, the, the very worst thing about it, you just think, I, this is going to destroy me. And this says loudly and clearly, no, I trust in the living God. I keep my eyes fixed on him. And because I know that he is sovereign and in control, he will not allow me more to be tempted more than I can bear. And he will not destroy me through the suffering, hard as it is. This feels so otherworldly, doesn't it? And yet we, even in this passage, I think Stephen's giving us a couple of ways that we can do this. How is this possible? I think Stephen's giving us a couple of examples. The first is a deep prayer life. The strength of your prayer life, the vitality of your prayer life, will be the, the kind of distinguishing marker of whether or not you're able to endure through suffering. The strength of your prayer life will be the deciding factor of whether or not you can endure through the darkest times in your life. You think about Stephen, he's a devout man. He's full of the Spirit. And we know that when we look through the book of Acts, being filled with the Spirit means he is a man who's prayed a lot, who's prayed and been, and been literally filled with the Spirit as he prays, prays and devotes himself to prayer. Even in that idea that he's described as one with a face shining, it's reminiscent of Moses as he goes and dwells with God on Mount Sinai. It's a picture of saying, this man is a man who's dwelt with God. Before this moment, before the suffering came even, he is a man who dwelt with God. And it is that dwelling, that track record, that intimacy that he has experienced with the living God. The one who has dwelt with God and seen him such that it's kind of affected his countenance that enables him to be different in the face of suffering. So the, the way to prepare yourself to deal with suffering, only some of you are dealing with suffering now, but many of you aren't. The way you prepare yourself to deal with the inevitable suffering that will come in life is a vital and deep prayer life that you can say, I've dwelt with the living God. I've met him. I know him. That is one answer here. It also, by the way, says, do you see the spiritual battle to so many of the troubles that we face in our lives? Say you're arguing with your spouse. Say you're just, oh, we just keep arguing at this moment. You can choose to, you need to, in fact, go through the forgiveness and reconciliation process that Christ would give us. But you also might just say in that moment, maybe we need to pray about this. Maybe in this moment, we need to see that there is a kind of spiritual battle here that Satan would seek to draw us apart from each other. And actually, even in this moment, the answer to our sin is to pray. There's a spiritual battle. Or maybe you're dealing with anger and shame and all sorts of different unwanted emotions. And in that moment, the answer is prayer. To bring that pain and that suffering to him and ask him to come and to reshape your heart. To experience his love. But there's another thing that Stephen gives us, and I think this is so crucial. If there's one thing you remember, I think this is it. Keep looking at Jesus in your suffering. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in your suffering. As I reflect on this passage, I just think it's incredible that Jesus is looking down on Stephen. That Jesus is looking down in his darkest hour. Where is Jesus? He's right there with him. He has a prophetic vision as if to reveal that reality. But in a sense, I think we can all believe that. That in the midst of our suffering, where is Christ? He is with you if you are his, if you put your faith in him. Christ is with you in your darkest hour. And as you go through suffering, sometimes the number one thing you need to know is Christ is with you. Christ is interested in your suffering. You know, in suffering, there's always the temptation to believe, where is God? 
in that moment? Where is God? How has he allowed this suffering to creep past him so that now I'm experiencing this mess without him? That is the temptation that you might be given to feeling. And in that moment, you need to believe strongly and loudly, just as Jesus reveals to Stephen in this moment, Jesus is with me. He's interested. He's standing in this moment. There's kind of theologians have debated, what does that mean that Jesus is standing? Perhaps it's a picture of him advocating to the Father on his behalf admits the suffering he's experiencing, Jesus is advocating the Father. Perhaps others have speculated Jesus is standing because he's ready to welcome him in. Either way, it says Jesus is interested. Jesus knows what's going on in your life. Jesus is committed to you, and he's looking in. He's not left you in the midst of suffering. You'll be tempted to look elsewhere when you're going through suffering. You'll be tempted to look at the suffering to kind of lay, just go over and over all the difficult things that you're facing. Woe, perhaps even tempted to go into self-pity, kind of, woe is me and my circumstances, and my life is too hard. I, I definitely fall into that sometimes myself. So you might be tempted to look at your suffering. You might be tempted to look at yourself. Say, I can't do this. I can't believe I, this is so hard. I can't believe this. Yeah, I'm, I'm rubbish. I wish I, I wish I could handle this better. I can't cope. Say, no, don't look at either of those things. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your suffering. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Isn't this exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us? To fix our eyes on the one who ran before us. Just as Stephen is suffering the greatest trial, he's looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of his faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As you go through any kind of hardship in your life, you need to remember Jesus went through more, and he's already been through it, and he's passed through it, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. That he has conquered that suffering, and he's conquered that, that battle against sin, so to speak, and he's now with the Father. Not that he ever sinned, but he conquered everything you're facing. And now he's, win- now he's seated, ready to welcome you in. And so put this all together. And this cashes out at a call, a question even. Are you willing to lay down your life like Stephen in this moment? Are you willing to make your life a living sacrifice? I don't think this means necessarily for most of us, are you willing to die for Christ? Although maybe that will be the calling for one or two of you in this room. But instead, we ask ourselves, are we willing to sacrificially lay down our lives in the pursuit of the mission of God? To say to Christ, I'm willing to sacrifice my time, my money, my home. I'm willing to invite others into my home in pursuit of the mission of God. I'm willing to give finances in pursuit of the mission of God. I'm willing to uh, befriend others and to structure my relationships about showing the love of Christ. I know we used it a few weeks ago, but I think it, it is an important verse that describes our calling. At the end of his life, Paul describes the same kind of posture of being a living sacrifice. It says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Are you willing to be poured out as a drink offering? Why? Why is Stephen willing to give his life? Why would you be willing to pour out your life as a drink offering? And the answer to both is because Christ is worth it. Because you have found a love that is better than life, that means I can give away all that I have, 
I can lay down the privileges and the gifts that he's given me even because I've found something that's far greater and I can do it in joy because Christ is worth it. That's one reason. But the other reason perhaps is even simpler and that is that you have received the love of Christ. Everything that Stephen does here, I think, is a picture of Christ and it's a picture of the love of Christ. Out of love, Christ is willing to confront us. Out of love, Stephen is willing to suffer and is willing even to forgive his enemies. So out of love, we are willing to pour ourselves out. So actually, as we hear this, in, in this example, as we hear this call, this vision to be like Stephen, but ultimately to be like Christ, we hear a call to be people of love, to be a people who carry with us the beautiful aroma of Christ. Isn't that a privilege? To carry with us the love of Christ, the courage of Christ, the peace in suffering of Christ, the trust in his Father of Christ. So as we hear this great vision that Christ would call us to, we start with a prayer, saying, Lord, would you do this in us? Stephen didn't do this on his own. This is not mighty Stephen. That's not the point of Acts chapter 6 and 7. The point of Acts chapter 6 and 7 is, look at what God did through this ordinary man. So we come to God and just say, Lord, would you do it in us? By your spirit, would you make us a people who carry the aroma of Christ? Would you help us to become Christ-like? That is the calling of our lives. Let's pray.